Hey, good morning, everybody. It is so great to be gathered, even though we're not physically together, to be gathered in heart and mind and spirit this morning. Um, in a recent University of Toronto study, researchers took grayscale pictures of 80 men and 80 women, different ethnicities, backgrounds, but there was no piercing, there was no tattoos, there was no visible signs. Um, they were all done in the exact same way. Well, then they took these photos and they showed them to students. Now, what they didn't know is that half of the people that were photographed made under $60,000 a year. Half of the people photographed made more than $100,000 a year. And they asked the students to identify which were which. With no other information, no tattoos, no earrings, no jewelry, same shirt or same wear, grayscale with that, no makeup. And the students were correct in guessing almost 70% of the time with no other cues. And they couldn't even explain why they chose who they chose. They just intuited it from looking. But oftentimes, we don't want people to guess. We don't want people to guess about our status or our affiliations. We don't want them to guess about our associations, our affections. We want those to be crystal clear. <clears throat> Roland Bell really wants you to know what football team he roots for on Sundays. Josie Lawson is emphatic that you know that she is a Harry Potter fan with what she does. And in our current political climate, lots of people want, to know, want you to know exactly who they support, who they vote for in ways that go far beyond bumper stickers. These signs and symbols become incredibly important to us, even sacred to us. So what happens when our allegiances change? What happens when that change sets us apart? And do we cut our hair? Now, I didn't cut my hair this morning, I just pulled it back, but kind of as a visible representation, probably when I came on the screen, uh, you're like, oh, well, what does John want to communicate by that? Did he cut his hair? Well, what does that mean? That's a, way of, that's a way of sending a message about something about us has changed when we change these symbols, when we change these things we do. So do we cut our hair? Do we change our vote? Do we drive Subarus instead of Hummers? Uh, do we move? Do we change our churches, our friends, our job, our location? How do we communicate this? Usually the first thing that goes are the symbols. And I think some something like this is happening in our text this week with Paul and the fledgling church in Corinth. And while it's easy to miss, I believe it indicates something profoundly important. So let's pray and then we will read the text together. God, thank you that our allegiance is to you and to you alone, and that you are continuing to cultivate our affections, to direct our associations. God, you are continuing to turn our hearts more and more towards you, to root us deeply into your presence and your kingdom. And while this is profound in that it sets us apart from the things we may have found home in before, there is no better home than in you. 
So open our minds, our hearts, our ears to receive this today. Receive your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So as the text comes up on the screen, I encourage you to read it out loud where you are. Uh, if you're in a place with other people, take turns reading it, but let the words come out of your mouth, hear them, and we'll all be reading this together. So there's a lot going on in this passage. We're introduced to a number of individuals here, here that's very important to take note of. Um, Aquila and Pr Priscilla are going to be important to the story of the new church. We're introduced to them here. Uh, Claudius, the emperor of Rome at the time, allows us to place this story specifically in a specific time in history. Likewise, Galio, the proconsul there, who um, just as an aside, was the brother of Seneca, the famous Roman uh, politician with that. Uh, Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshiped God, is introduced to us, as well as Crispus, the president of the synagogue, who apparently leaves the synagogue to join the church because we see another person named as the president of the synagogue later. Um, we also are introduced to Apollos, a Jew from Alexandria, but with a very Gentile name, a very Greek name, so we can assume he was part of a Hellenist family there growing up, who goes on later. And although she's not mentioned specifically in this passage, um, we get the idea that this might have been where Paul met Phoebe, uh, because we know she was from Centuria, where Paul cuts his hair. And Phoebe becomes one of Paul's most trusted uh, disciples and messengers, uh, delivers. She is the one who basically gives the book of Romans, recites it to the Roman church, takes questions, defends its ideas and its arguments as Paul's uh, representative or messenger to the Roman church. So some very important people here. Uh, this is also probably during this time, this year and a half time, where Paul is in Corinth, that he writes the letters to the Thessalonians, as well as the letter to the Galatians. So he's developing a lot of those thoughts while he is in community here with this fledgling church in Corinth. And what all that says is this, these are real people. This is real places, real history, uh, real choices and situations that they're having to respond to. Lots is being decided tried, evaluated, changed. The interaction between Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila uh, demonstrate this very well, how some people had certain knowledge, other people had a different knowledge, how they came together, they shared that, they agreed upon it, they committed one another. It's, it's, a, it's just this beautiful example of humility, of giving and receiving and responding to the situations as they arose. Well, all this offers us Grace Church, hope and encouragement to embrace the situations and the questions with a similar faith, a similar humility, a similar courage, and a similar boldness. We're always learning. None of us have it all together. We're always in dialogue with others, both those who have gone before us through history, starting with the people that we meet in the Bible, but also through different times of church history, uh, different cultures, different ways that different parts of the church worship. Um, we need to be giving and receiving in that and honoring and valuing 
the perspective of others as we are doing this. But all the while, tapping deeper and deeper into the things that never change, into the things that are always eternally present. You see, we, we could easily look at this and forget that Paul's ultimate allegiance never changed, even though his encounter with Jesus radically changed everything else. I, I was struck as we were talking this week, thinking about how this revelation that Paul had of Jesus and this course that he sets off on to bear witness to the gospel in the Gentile world probably, well, not probably it did, but it alienated him from his closest friends, those he grew up with. Um, all the colleagues that he shared, he shared thoughts with, he went to school with, he had weddings with, confided in, who he, those he looked up to, those he sought to emulate, those who looked up to him, ultimately because of this change, many of them would try to kill him. And that must have been tremendously emotionally costly to Paul. Um, I think it also motivated part of his motivation to say, I'm just going to go to the Gentiles from now on with that as he saw that going. But conversion, you see, this conversion that Paul went through, this spiritual formation that every one of us is called to, um, rarely happens in an instant. You know, we can, we can read all of Acts in, in just a matter of an hour, maybe, um, and we see the whole arc of Paul's life go through that, but we have to remember that this was real, this was happening in real time. It happened over a number of years, decades. And the same is with us, is rarely do, is it one thing that changes us, one thing that sets us apart, but it's the accumulation of experiences as we go through. But that is what we're going through. Becoming a follower of Jesus, the Christian faith itself, is a call to the conversion of our entire imagination. It's not just interesting information or useful information, or saving information. It's a conversion of one's entire understanding, estimation, experience of what is real, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, what ought to be, how things have to be. Through it, we are born again, literally, spiritually, physically, imaginatively, metaphorically, and in some ways, actually physiologically as our affections change. And those are rooted into our neurons and our receptors, into our thinking. Without that conversion, y'all, we have eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, minds that do not understand. This conversion is both salvation and death, becoming and undoing freedom and captivity. Death to the old ways of thinking and being and acting. Undoing of years of habit and enculturation and tribalism. Captivity to a whole new reality that won't let us go back to the way things were before. But it is also freedom to be and see and understand in a way that is truly life-giving and free. Alive not now, but for forever 
and saved in the truest sense of the word. It also includes us into the great community of God's kingdom, the saints, and it cuts us off from all other allegiances. We're still in the world, but we're not of it. It demands from us everything, but gives us so much more than we ever could have dreamed up on our own. It's ruthless and uncompromising in its commitment to our wholeness, to our wholeness, and unending in its mercy and grace to see it accomplished in us. Once we've started, we may forsake God a thousand times, a day even, but we will never be forsaken. We may be tempted to forget the truth with each pop-up promise, each daily demand and disappointment, but this truth will not give up its purchase in our mind. This love that we have may smolder in our hearts, but it will not be extinguished because its source is not from us, but from the one who is truth and love itself. This is very different from the way the world thinks, from the mind apart from God. And I recently read this love that, that helped me compare and contrast this a little bit. <clears throat> you may be aware that there's a lot of conspiracy theories and explanations for all the things that are happening in our world. Um, people give up and they give a comprehensive meaning of all the conspiracies and factors that are going on. I hope you're avoiding such discussions. I know they're inevitable that they come at us. But this is, this is what this one commentator said. It says, hard, it's not hard to see how conspiracy theories can be appealing in times like this. A complex world inevitably leaves gaps in our finite understanding. But a good, consp but a good conspiracy theory can fill in every gap, every unknown, conjure, by conjuring up invisible forces, secret motives, double agents, conspiratorial groups that have this almost supernatural power to control and manipulate. And it's also an implicit appeal to our human pride. Wouldn't it be great if we knew the truth while everybody else was being deceived? Doesn't it us make us feel good when we can see through all the smoke to the real motives of that? It appeals to our need for security. It appeals to our need to know. It appeals to our need to be special. Hey, because if we can glimpse behind the curtain, we're smarter, we're better, we're safe in a way. Well, let me tell you, following Jesus kind of does the exact opposite of that of what the conspiracy theories do. They call us to leave behind such childish, prideful thinking, such partisan posturing, such rabid reactions. It calls us in many ways to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, to lay down every other allegiance, affection, association for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. We give up the certainty we crave that we want to guarantee our personal safety and risk it all for the certainty of the gospel promise 
though it makes everything else uncertain. And that's what we see in the text today is they're leaving behind the things that they thought to enter into this new thing, which in one sense does make sense. It, it is a certainty, but it makes everything else uncertain. They have to respond to that. Uh, that's what Paul is doing. Almost everything he once held as essential, table fellowship, circumcision, uh, the temple, feast, fasting, celebrations, who you marry, um, how you marry, what you do, even how you wear your hair. He sets all that aside to know one thing, and that's Christ and him crucified and the power of the Messiah in the world. All of it, everything was being rethought by the church. And let me tell you, this was no easy process for Paul or for the church. And it's a process that still goes on today. It's a process for us. <clears throat> we are called not so much to imitate the outcomes, but to imitate the process, the radical reorienting that Paul and Apollos, Priscilla and Aquilus, Crispus and Titus and Phoebe showed. Their radical obedience and lay, humbly laying down aside everything that distracted from their witness. Everything that distracted from their faithfulness. Everything that distracted from their abiding in Jesus. Now, this is their testimony and instruction to us. The question is, are we willing to consider everything in light of the call Jesus? One step towards that obedience is when we come together for communion, the taking of the elements, because we need to be reminded of this on a daily basis. And it's a physical representation. We do it as an act of obedience, but also an act of receiving what we cannot provide for ourselves. As we come to the table of Christ to receive the gifts of God for the people of God, for us, so that we might walk, again, with very specific people in a very specific time, in a very specific place, faithfully to the call of Jesus, rejecting all the symbols of other allegiances, this is the one, and it starts at the table. So this morning, as we do, we take the bread, and we remember that when Jesus broke it, he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. And we take the cup, and we remember that as he did, he said, this is my blood poured out as a sign of the new covenant. And so we take and eat in gratitude and allegiance and love for the one who gave himself for us. Likewise, we respond with deeply considering the words of the text that have been spoken and committing ourselves to respond, not just to be passive, but to respond in obedience with what is shown us. And part of that is giving of our offering. It'll come up on the screen how you can do that, but we do that as symbolic, that all of us have something to offer, and none of us is without need. And so we put that together to share with one another as part of our witness. 
I want to thank you for being here. I know it takes an effort. I know a lot of us are on the computer quite a bit, or phones, but this is sacred space. You've made it sacred by showing up and honoring it. And now, um, let's enjoy some more worship and benediction as we head into the rest of our day. Grace and peace, y'all.